our show. This is the Arts Report, uh, CATR 101.9 FM, broadcasting to you um, at UBC and... Unseated Territory of the Musqueam People. That's right. And I'm Jake Clark. And I'm Ashley Park. Wow. Happy 1st of November, everybody. Here we are. We're here. You know, as Kermit the Frog said, time's fun when you're having flies. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I want to kick this show off a little... um, a little, uh, I don't want to say reticently, but certainly I kind of have to redact something I said last show. Okay. Um, and this wasn't the bit about the Martians. I think we cut that. <laughs> um, but uh, this is about Orfeo, which I mentioned was an opera by Monteverdi. That was incorrect. The opera itself is not actually Monteverdi's Orfeo. It's Orfeo et Uredice. And it was not running last weekend. It was running, it is running this weekend. I'll be seeing it on Friday, actually. And I'll try to do it justice with a review on our next show. And I'm very sorry for uh, any silliness that resulted from that. Because it's, uh, it takes a lot of work to compose an opera. It takes certainly a lot of work to put that together. So for those opera fans who are tuned in right now, uh, mea culpa. Oh, mio colpa as they'd say in Italian. Um, and in addition to that, I also want to shout out the friends of mine at UBC Players Club, who I know for certain are staging Doubt, which it starts next Tuesday at, um, uh, uh, in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Dorothy Somerset mm-hmm. Theater. And Doubt is a, Doubt a parable is the film, it play, oh, good Lord. Play, yep. Yep, that's it. It's definitely a play is a, uh, a play about, well, it's about a few things. It's a serious drama about religion, trust. Uh, it gets into spotlight territory a little bit with, with the Catholic priests and what. Um, and I saw a little bit of a preview of it at studio sessions. Uh, lead actor is very intense and looking forward to seeing it. So that's, that's uh, that. And we have one more shout-out is the Texas Trio, which is a songwriting trio, I believe, from Arkansas. They're coming to the Chance Center. Mm-hmm. We'll have yeah, the, maybe Oklahoma. We'll have the uh, uh, the Texas Trebadors. They are a trio including Ruthie Foster, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and Carrie Rodriguez. They will swap songs and collaborate on stage for the uh, first time. As people may know, Texas has been a hub for musical innovation and called home by many of the world's greatest songwriters. Keeping up with this songwriting tradition, Foster, Gilmore, and Rodriguez have each played an important role in defining the enduring southern sound of their home state. Each will offer a different take on that songwriting tradition as one exceptional trio. I'm actually looking forward to that one because I remember Guy Clark died last year and... uh, I, I'm not, I don't think a lot of people knew who he was. Actually, I, when he died, there were friends of the family from Texas staying there, and they didn't know who he was. But he's a songwriter. He wrote L.A. Freeway, Dublin Blues. He wrote a lot of really great songs. He collaborated with he, – he was a friend and collaborator with another famous Texas songwriter, Towns Van Zant, And uh, both of them are definitely worth checking out. But um, he was a brilliant songwriter. He's influenced country music especially, although he never called himself a country musician. He's a folk singer from Texas. But that's – something I'm very interested in because that's a sort of interesting songwriting tradition. He sounds like um, um, a, a really almost, well, he, they, they, it's, you know, everybody sounds like something else, but he's a pioneering songwriter, and that's what I was reminded of with this. Mm-hmm. And if people want to go uh, check them out, they are on uh, Wednesday, November the 8th at 8 p.m., 
It's the Chan Center, Texas Tribadors, featuring Ruthie Foster, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and Carrie Rodriguez. All right. So that out of the way, let's talk about King Charles III. Ah, yes, King Charles III. So remember last year when we did the Mary Poppins review? Yeah. And we were sort of reluctant to say it, but the Stanley did not put on a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is that. Kind of, except except, uh, you and Christine actually, like, stayed till the end of the show. I... I'm going to be honest, I walked out. You were not the only one. And this I is walked thing. out at intermission. I don't remember anybody walking out of Mary Poppins, which was, I want to say right now, a more, in terms of storytelling and cohesion, incompetent show. This was a show that has a brand of, has a certain, it's more cohesive. It's just, uh, <laughs> you, they built a house on sand, basically. Mm. And as Mary Poppins had that really amazing step in time number, which was, uh, there There were good parts about this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were more subdued because the good parts of this were almost subsumed by the fact that this, so this play, for those unaware, is marketed as a satire. It's not played like it. There's not yeah. a huge sense of humor to it. And I think that's more to do with the staging than the script. Mm-hmm. And when we were kind of talking about it last week on mm. Wednesday I was actually kind of like hey this thing is pretty exciting I love a good political you know satire and uh you know even I even said like a jovial like you know like oh it's gonna be funny I'm this really, was not jovial I was really um. like <laughs> looking forward to us kind of like you know t- taking a critical look on the British monarchy and how it affects like you know Canadians and you know whatnot mm-hmm. you know how you know, how much, you know, you know, power do they really have? Is it image? Are they more celebrity now? Um, and all that kind of tensions that come with, like, you know, the fact that they have, you know, a parliament and a monarchy in this present time. How they managed that in this play, basically, is so Simon Webb, who was actually the doctor in Mr. Foot's Other Leg, and oh. has the same accent, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the same <laughs> Scottish accent. So he's Jeremy Corbyn. That's just who he is. That's He looks like, like Simon Webb does actually look a bit mm-hmm. like Jeremy Corbyn. He dresses like him. Also, the leader of the opposition is very obviously, uh, is, is very. Theresa May. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's. They are, their, their names are not uh, Jeremy. Stevens. Yeah, they're, they're not like and, Jeremy Corbyn. And Mr. Corbin Evans. Or, yeah. Is, but that's, that's who they are. They represent that based on their appearance. Mm-hmm. And you can't help but think that they are those politicians because it's supposed to be very kind of like topical like right now ish and the thing about it is so this the play begins after that because there's a gap between the secession and the coronation Mm -hmm. and that's where this entire thing takes place (laughs) and what happens is when charles takes power the first bill put in front of him by mr evans is on limiting the power of the press Mm -hmm. and he's like oh yeah yep we should this this should be fine and the the crux of his story is that he won't let this happen because he believes in a free press. So this is an interesting, would be an interesting conflict, but for a few issues with it as a work of satire. Mm-hmm. One, it's played dead straight. Yep. And so here's the thing. <sighs> Jeremy Corbyn may be a socialist. Yeah, yeah. He is. But you, you can't really stick even close to center left right now unless you believe in speech. Nor can you really stick with center right. Mm-hmm. Because both of those political spheres in modern democratic discourse, American, British, certainly Canadian, have a later round lock, basically Lockean principles of free speech mm-hmm. and human agency. It's That's just the way statecraft has arranged itself. And it's kind of ironic to me, or at least 
this could be a bigger satirical point, but it's just played so dryly here yep. that it's a monarch who, in, as a person, has probably run through more difficulties with the press, and they point this out, who tries to stand for freedom of the press. Um, so this would be interesting to explore. The second act... Uh-huh. Um, the one that I, I missed. So We but, have to set up the first act, though. So Queen Elizabeth II passes away. Yes. Uh, Charles is king, but because she reigned for such a long time, and he's such a, uh, now a king at such an old age... His major concern is his legacy. That's, that's right. That's very much clear. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I'm mostly aware of Prince Charles through Christopher Hitchens, who did not have a high opinion of him, and neither do I, in all frankness, but I don't have a high opinion of most royalty, because uh, I have issues with the office of monarchy. I don't detest, I'm not like full French Revolution, get him out of there in two pieces, but yeah, yeah. I, I have great suspicions of it. Mm-hmm. So, when this thing, in- when this play, sorry, introduces its characters as having this duty to what they believe to be the state. It does a reasonably good job of setting up how these characters are going to be played in that regard. Charles thinks of himself as a standard monarch, a strong king. He's Mm -hmm. not a strong person, but he wants to be a strong king, whereas William, and especially Kate too, see themselves as statesmen, basically. And Harry's just a, a, a wastrel, and his story is just Harry this... is, like, a weird, like, uh, Princess Jasmine kind of thing, where he's like, oh, I... Because I'm such I'm such a royal person, I don't know what it's like to live a real life. Oh, I'm just gonna go out and, like, you know, party and blah, blah, blah. Well, and an, then, unlike know. Princess Jasmine, he actually knows his love interest is of... has a significant class right. gap at the That's time. Right. See, his story is a love story with his art student named Jess. Um, he was very left-leaning. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, Guy Fox masks do show up right after intermission. Uh, that bugs me, but we'll get to that. Yep. Um, so with... Messy love story. With Jess, uh, like, it, it it should be more interesting than it is. And there's actually a funny scene where Harry gets a... a it's, 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 a it's a pita, I think. Yeah. And that is actually... I enjoyed that. You enjoyed it? I thought it was so cheesy, and it didn't make sense at all from for what we knew of, you know, actually, you know, Prince Harry... That it felt really out of character. It, it's not, that's so weird to say Prince Harry was out of character, but Prince Harry was out of character for me. And then like just like having the magical Peta man who happens to be—that's true, actually. An, that 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 is questionable in and of itself, right? An, who happens <laughs> but, to be an, an uh, a person of like you know um, vague vague Middle Eastern like descent. Mm-hmm. It go like oh you know let me give you all your life's you know solutions you know. And then also hand you a pita. In all fairness, I was also kind of hungry and did really want a pita. Right? Like, it was just, I was, like, watching this, like, wow, mm, really, do I have to see this? This is so stupid. Harry is such a stupid character. It was dumb, but it was a, it was, I I wouldn't say it was dumb. I would say it was silly. I would say that it was silly but played straight. It's silly but played straight, which is why everything was so, like, to me, not enjoyable at all. It was so long. The pacing was so... Yeah, this this play is boring. So there's multiple appearances from the ghost of Princess Diana. They had nothing. Yeah. Uh, Camilla as a character is pointless. Uh, has literally no effect on the plot whatsoever. It just feels um, like all the other women which, are there to like you know prop up accurate. the 
prop up the the angst and the pain of the the male characters and Diana, as you mentioned, the most. So the, they're just used as like you know angst plot device. For I men. do want to point out though, with this angst plot device, there was a really good acting moment I thought from Oliver Rice, who played Prince William. Okay. When he sees the ghost of Diana, the ghost of his mother. Effectively, mm-hmm. and that's one of the few points where the ambitions of this to be sort of Shakespearean thing and the actual presentation kind of worked, because I did feel like I, I did kind of feel with him this sense of confusion and need for intimacy there, like this aborted mm-hmm. family. And I'm not a fan of, of of Princess Diana by any means, and and but uh, I can understand that. I can understand where they're going with that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't make much of that, though. No. Uh, and I think that a large... If this is a commentary on masculinity, it could actually work in some ways because the focus on being stony and implacable is detrimental to all three... All, to Charles, to William, and to Harry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, and in the end, it ends with all of them being forced into some role by that. Uh, but the second act... See, you were bored during the first act. I, it's not that I was bored. I was just merely quietly, intensely enraged is what I was seeing. Oh, you'd have been less quietly enraged by the second act because that they turn um they turn Princess Kate into Lady Macbeth. Hmm. Yeah. Like good Lady Macbeth rendition or bad? No, like, no, we're not rendition. supposed to like her. Oh. Um, what okay. this reminded me of more than anything else was Madonna's movie W.E., which is about <laughs> Wallace Simpson and the 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 last King Edward. Okay. Uh, where they play the Queen Mum as this backstabbing evil chess master, played, yeah, Nat- yeah. played by Natalie Dormer, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, Marjorie, what are you doing here? <laughs> that was um. But that's one of those things, like. Uh, it's just this dissonance of character that might work in something that is like a more humor, a more humorous, a more engaging satire. Yep, yeah. But it's not, and oh, no. because of that, this it ends up being like, oh man, Kate's kind of evil, and she's really feministy. But like, then that's, that's not, what it seems. Yeah, like. it's like really feministy, but we're already that feministy is already shrouded in layer of evil, so we're supposed to see, a, like, a bad thing. Well, no, thing. like, she, she literally says that her ambition is because the country is ruled by men, ergo it has to be removed. And her entire objective throughout the rest of the play is to undermine this structure. But then, but then the, the lens is that she, we're supposed to regard her as a villain, not, like, a hero, right? Yes. So that's, like, the problem. Yes, ah. that is, that is, uh... It's, it's kind of, like, some of it is questionable, and that as... You're right, I would have not have been quietly enraged at no, that point. No, no, you wouldn't have. You would... You probably would have walked out in the middle of the show at that point. Yeah. Um, so that was I, – I, I wasn't enraged by this. I was annoyed by it uh, mm-hmm. in the last half. I was I was kind of with it for the first act, honestly, but um, I, I was only slight – I was irritated by it more and more um, as, uh, as, as it went on because the Prince Harry story is like – I'm in love with this girl, and there's nudes of her on the front of the sun. Meanwhile, the other pages are about his father imposing martial law. I'm like, okay, perspective. Uh-huh. By the way, he imposes martial law in the second act. Not exactly sure how you get from a discourse about free speech to, you know, oh, let's impose martial law. But that's the point where it's like, this argument now just becomes us flexing each other, and that becomes it fairly early. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's another point I really didn't get for, for Mr. Evans, because he's a pragmatic person. He is a statesman. The prime minister. Yes, mm-hmm. the, the prime minister. Again, Simon Webb wasn't bad in this. He's just every character is pretty one note. Yeah, like, everyone's very one note, which they, is the um, reason why I could not, mm-hmm. like, you know, really get into it. Everyone just felt like like they were supposed to be a stock stereotype character, mm. but they were playing playing the thing straight. They, um, I, I will give them this. Like, Ted Cole did try as Charles. He did try yeah. to create this sympathetic but very weak person. Mm-hmm. And in, But in the end, because of the way it's written, like, I can't feel sympathy for him. All I can see is a tyrant. For me, like, how and it's written, that, I just I just saw, like, uh, just saw a really, really boring character. Well, I, I, um, and I, I think maybe that's, like, the problem. Maybe it was, like, the way that it was presented on stage. Because if it won an award, maybe on page it reads much more faster than it is. It just felt like the indecisions he had just felt even more stagnant and even more longer. Well, they also didn't pace them very well. He was in simultaneously too much and not enough of it. I, I honestly think that you could have... If you fused some of his scenes towards it, if you cut the appearances from the Diana ghost entirely and you made Harry's plot sort of surface in the second act, basically Mm -hmm. if you made Jess a second act character, you could make a much more coherent and effective political drama. Or if you played everything, all of the inconsistencies, all of the Shakespearean tropes, if you played those as comedy, you could have an effective satire. But as it stands... You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's too slow. It's too long, and the characters are too one note. Yep. So the, the, there's just systematic flaws to it. It was an admirable effort, I'll say that. Like even as even with Mary Poppins, like Mary Poppins was ambitious. It just was ineffective, and this is probably more ambitious. As a gestalt, like Mary Poppins was worse on the whole. Like okay. it was more incompetent than this for you, for me, mm-hmm. for me. Uh, uh, but uh. It also had that moment of greatness with Step in Time, and this didn't really have that. It didn't have relief, and that was what I feel like the audience was kind of, like, looking toward. And before we break for the uh, the commercials, I just want to say Guy Fawkes masks. So Tell me about them. I really want to know. Guy Fawkes masks get adopted as symbols of... Like anarchy almost. Yeah, because yeah. of V for Vendetta, yes. which is a really interesting book and a competent movie. But... A graphic novel, what have you. Mm-hmm. Guy Fawkes was not a, an anarchist. Guy Fawkes wasn't even a democratically inclined person. Mm-hmm. Guy Fawkes was infuriated because he was extremely Catholic and disliked the takeover of Protestantism in England. He wanted a more repressive state, and he wanted to damage Parliament because he believed it destroyed the sovereignty that he wanted to see in government at the time. Mm-hmm. So in this regard, Guy Fawkes was actually a reactionary. And the adoption of his face by V in V for Vendetta kind of plays into this sort of cruel irony, which is at hand throughout the entire work. And Alan Moore's great at that. In the film, they don't dwell on that. That's fine. It's it's, it's made by the Wachowskis. Just the the less they try to be philosophical, the better for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you get groups like Anonymous doing that, saying, oh, yes, we're, they're saying we're V, not we're Guy Fawkes. And the funny thing is that misses the point entirely of the Guy Fawkes mask being V's mask in the first place because it's an individual rebellion. When everyone Mm -hmm. puts on the mask, V's counting on them not knowing what it is before, only knowing what it is now. In effect, he's counting on ignorance working in his favor to abolish ignorance. That's 
a pretty amazing irony, and that's one thing I really enjoyed mm-hmm. about, among other things. Like, How are the masks used in the play? Well, just protesters have them, and oh, okay. it's just Jess has one in the end. And whenever that comes up, especially for a play like this, where mm-hmm. it's supposed to be very erudite in history, I'm like, you could have made a joke about that. You could have made one single joke. It's very British. It's, it's very yeah. British. Very, very British. Yes, sir. Yes, right, sir. Um, but you could have made one joke about that. That's just a personal thing for me. They didn't have to, but... It just the Guy Fox mask doesn't but, work as a symbol to me. But the thing is, it could have been like whether or not it was chosen to be uh, in the production by the creative team or actually written into the play. I don't know if yeah. if either one was true, but either way, they could, you, you could have. You know what? Honestly, it would be realistic because I suspect if there were protests like that, people would have Guy Fox masks. So mm-hmm. you know what? I could say it's accurate. I just it just annoys me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I want to talk about, like, let me just try to end with a good note, is I thought I thought the costuming looked nice. Like, they looked oh, yeah. like the royalty. Like, oh, yeah. some of them. Uniforms, they, the sort of West Wingish outfits. Kate Middleton looked like Kate Middleton. Who was the actress for uh, Kate Middleton? I just Catherine saw her. Catherine Gauthier. And she really <laughs> looked like her. She had a, yeah, she did. And yeah. she, at one point, she had a dress that was really very clingy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, you know, I'm a Neanderthal, so I'm like, yay, thumbs up. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, like they had that down. She had some pretty, pretty impeccable threads throughout. Yep. Not, n- not, not hide nor hair of Pippa, but that's fine. That's mm-hmm. uh, well, this the play was limited. They they were they were pressed for time as it is. Anyway, um, hopefully because we we went on like what opening night. We did yes. Yeah, hopefully you know if they're still going and you go, you know what I I still am a little you know. Kind if of, you like, really really interested. liked History Boys. Huh. You might like this, and they might have changed their pacing from then. Mm. It could have been like you no know, uh, opening, you know, night, you know, jitters or something. Well, if it's if, if, if it's a three hour play, you're not gonna be able to. You're not really gonna be able to knock it down that yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say one thing: if you don't, cutting text. if you go watch it and you go like, I don't like it, leave that intermission. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. And now a word from our sponsor. Definitely check it out if you are into that kind of stuff. But uh, for us, it was uh, a, a miss. The Crane Library is looking for student volunteers to record textbooks for those who cannot use print at the university. If you are a UBC student who is computer literate with an ability to read university material aloud and you have a willingness to learn new techniques, we ask for a two-hour commitment once a week. For additional information and to set up an edition, call 604-822-6114 or email crane.volunteer at ubc.ca. You're biking, you're biking, you're biking. Oh no! Something broke and you need it fixed or you need to learn how to fix it. And the AMS Bike Co-op and Bike Kitchen have been there for you. And now is your chance to be there for them. Come out November 10th to Gam Gallery at 110 East Hastings from 7 p.m. to midnight for Pedaling Art, their second annual fundraiser and bike art auction in collaboration with Our Community Bikes. So share the love. Make it out. and Film presents a world premiere shining with love and possibility. Wives and Daughters by Jacqueline Ferkins, based on Elizabeth Gaskell's Victorian serial novel, is a charming romp of love convoluted by hidden desires and expectations. I like to be liked, but when people carry their affection too far, they become troublesome. 
Cynthia's a sweet girl and charming, but she was always in some spot of trouble. She wasn't mischievous, exactly, but mischief seems to follow her. Join us from November 9th to 25th at the Frederick Wood Theatre. After a certain age, a daughter becomes inconvenient. So we must stop being inconvenient daughters and become inconvenient wives? Theaterfilm.ubc.ca So a Victorian serial novel, is that, is that, that's about Prince Albert shredded wheat, right? <laughs> <laughs> Almost not quite. Prince Albert shredded wheat, the story. And How he named himself after an opera hall and a piercing through the, uh, well, well probably shouldn't say. <laughs> Anyways, welcome back to the Arts Report, uh, everybody. Opera hall, is that the term? I am your host, Ashley Park. And I'm Jake Clark. And we're actually with a very special uh, guest with us. You might have heard the advertisement not too long ago, Wives and uh, Daughters is going to be playing at UBC. We have UBC theater and film professor Jacqueline Ferkins with us. Welcome to the Arts Report. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. So let's kind of just get right into it. Wives and Daughters, Elizabeth Gaskell, what made you go, I need to do this? <laughs> I know, I'm getting right everybody to it. Everybody says that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody just has a Victorian novel burning to get out of them somehow. Well, this isn't the first one for you. And you, you mentioned in the site that uh, Gaskell was affiliated with Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens, but she's not, I would say, part of the canon the same way they're known to be. Right. Which, that well, that's part, part of, of the, uh, the impetus of getting her work out there. When I started trying to write plays mm-hmm. as a fledgling playwright, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to some writers who have already figured out the story part, and then I will figure out how to make them into plays. So I was looking for female writers whose work had not been turned into play form before. Mm-hmm. So all of Jane Austen's works have been turned into plays over and over and over again. <laughs> and miniseries. Oh, exactly. the BBC loves it. Right. Everybody's seen Jane Eyre as a musical, as a play, as anything else. But Elizabeth Gaskell's work hasn't been done that much. So the Wuthering she... Heights musical was really tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't mind me just kind of jumping in there, why don't you think uh, Gaskell's work hasn't been as, uh, I guess, prominent compared to her contemporaries? Gaskell's work does not have the kind of sweeping high gothic sensibility that I think we we gravitate to, or we often think of Victorian literature all being very gothic, all Mm -hmm. having enormous symbolism and huge passionate relationships between tortured people. Mm -hmm. And Gaskell was much more of a kind of domestic comedian, so she wrote about the people around her, the family lives. Um, She'd be the kind of sitcom version in her time. Mm -hmm. Oh, neat. That's a... So this is your, as, as I mentioned, this is the second novel you've adapted. What, what was the first? So the first was Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. So we're all familiar with Charlotte Bronte, who wrote Jane Eyre. We're all familiar, familiar with Emily Bronte, who wrote Wuthering Heights. Yes. But their sister Anne wrote this novel, Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which follows a, a woman who leaves her husband, which was shocking at the time. It's mm-hmm. not shocking so much now. But, uh, yeah, gasp. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, that's much more in the kind of vein of what I think we picture the literature of the time being. Of course. And what is the story uh, behind Wives and Daughters that maybe you would like to put in your own words? So the the novel itself follows three families of three very different classes and just their interweaving lives, um, crossing over a couple years of time and all the things that they all want and can't have. Mm -hmm. And what I did with the play, because I can't possibly fit hundreds and hundreds of pages of Of material into into two hours. No, if you do that, you end up with King Charles III. Oh, man. (laughs) So I focused on one of the three families Mm -hmm. and just kind of used the other two to support the central story. So 
we're really following this young girl and she gets a new stepmother and a new step stepsister and they burst into her life and completely wreck everything she's come to know and love her sort of safe family mm-hmm. so it's a it's a coming of age story it's a you know it's um, as the director likes to say it's the story of a girl who moves from being a daughter to becoming a wife mm-hmm. um, now with uh, with things like Whit Stillman uh, did love and friendship a little bit ago mm-hmm. uh, other other ventures like that would you say there's a certain desire to revisit the genre now is there any, any impetus to that in the scene? Or? I don't know that there's necessarily a huge kind of trend toward that direction. I think we're seeing more of everything right now. Like content has exploded in the last several years um, with live streaming, with all kinds of things. So I think we're seeing as much new contemporary content as we are people who are looking back on other stories. So I like looking back on other stories because I feel like they're a great mirror to look at what is going on now, what has changed, what has not changed. So um, I think there are other other artists out there, other directors, other writers who are also interested in revisiting stories that may have been told but in slightly different ways. So I, I gather you've seen a lot of different iterations of this because you're, you're a Yale MFA grad in theater. Yep. You've done a lot of work in the States in, yes. in professional and academic companies. And I'm wondering about the differences there in the scene between these profession, the professional and the academic spheres, between the American and Canadian spheres. Mm-hmm. Could something like this get made in at the Steppenwolf in Chicago? Oh, possibly. Fortunately, I actually know some people at the Steppenwolf in Chicago, so it's a good example for you to bring up. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, there are a couple of things that I did in writing these, these three adaptations that I've done that are very specifically directed for academic theater. One is I am writing for a fairly large cast. Most professional companies in both Canada and the States right now are looking for small casts. Everybody's in a budget crunch. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they're looking for plays with two or three, maybe four people in them, and I'm writing plays with nine, 10, 11, 12 people mm-hmm. in them, which for universities is advantage. So I'm hopeful that other universities will pick up the material um, and it will serve them that way. I'm also specifically trying to write for this age group. I'm trying to write stories that have content and roles that are for people who are 20 years old and what they're going through. So professionally, um, it's possible that a place like Steppenwolf could do one of these shows. I think that for them to take it on, it means putting a pretty good chunk of resources into something that they might that might not necessarily fit into their season. Um, this but, wouldn't make a good double bill of buried child. <laughs> right, right. You'd have to do a lot of sort of one or two person shows to afford the one show <laughs> with with nine or eleven people in it. Rest in yeah. peace, Sam. <laughs> yeah, recent. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sad about that. I liked him a lot. Um, so, in in light of that, I, I gotta I gotta say, if you were to establish sort of this this literary canon with these figures, like um, <clears throat> excuse me, Anne Bronte. And um, I'm sorry, what Elizabeth was Gaskell. Elizabeth Gaskell. I was yep. wondering, like Gaskell, Gaskell. Um, would Would you say that there's a lot that has been forgotten, or is there this? Does the scholarship help that? Does it help to be in an academic context? I don't know that the scholarship has been forgotten. I just think there's 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 an impossible amount of things to know in the world. There's mm-hmm. there's so much literature. How can we know it all? So I do think that by getting these plays out there, it does uh, re-engage some interest in the material that people might not otherwise be familiar with, which is definitely one of my goals. Like I say, if there's material that I feel like people have already come across this, they know these stories, they know these characters, um, I'm less interested in tackling those stories. I kind of want to go for some of the things people don't know. So Hopefully it re-engages some of that, but I do think there are communities that are adamant and fascinated with Elizabeth Gaskell. There are communities that are adamant and fascinated with Anne Bronte and much less interested in Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. <laughs> so there are little kind of niche communities for, mm-hmm. for anything, any interest out there. Um, I'm hoping to introduce material to people who are maybe not familiar with it already. 
So this would be like an introduction to that community. Right, yep. Now, I do have a question about adaptation as well, because the those who adapted the Pride and Prejudice film, Colin Firth, also made an adaptation of uh, Wives and Daughters in 99, because mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. their dream project, and they won a couple BAFTAs, to my understanding. Was that at all an inspiration in this, or is was that a, is that a good or a bad adaptation in your estimation? Well, that's, that's, it's a very subjective question. I think the adaptation was beautifully done, and I'm pretty sure Andrew Davies did the screenplay for that. He's one of the best adapters out there of all this classic literature. He's the one who did the very famous Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. um, but he's done a number of these adaptations for the BBC. The, he did a he did a really beautiful job with it. I made a point of not watching it until I had at least drafted the play, so that oh, I was not creating my own work in response to either what I really liked or what I didn't like about what he did. Mm-hmm. And then it was interesting when I, once I at least had a draft to go in and watch the miniseries, um, which is significantly longer than what I could put in the play, and just look at what he kind of picked and chose of the material and the sort of the ways one line might change a little bit from what I had chosen, but neither of us actually used Elizabeth Gaskell's line. We both changed it, but we changed it in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I found it fascinating. I thought it was beautifully done. The characters are really, really well rendered in that story. Um, but it, it encompasses a huge amount more than what I would put in a stage play. One thing that I found quite interesting is that uh, Wives and Daughters was a serial, and it was actually never finished. Unfortunately, uh, Gaskell uh, died before finishing it. So how did that affect your ad- adaptation? In one way, it's terrifying, and in another way, it's very freeing, this thought of here's this this massive work, right, and I am going to take it on myself to complete this work that she has not completed. Mm-hmm. Um, it the did, ultimate cliffhanger. Right, exactly. <laughs> so in the, in the novel, her editor publishes an afterword that says, this is what we assume will happen. We have some notes from the author. This is kind of what we will assume will happen. So he gives us the plot, mm-hmm. but we get to choose how we lay that out. So for me, one of the things I definitely wanted to do in writing the stage version to say, okay, we know that's how the plot is going to end, but I get to choose the tone with which I end it. Mm -hmm. So we know that, for example, these two characters are going to um, come to a conclusion on a kind of rocky relationship. Well, I'm not going to give them the sweeping, you know, leap into (laughs) each other's arms ending. I'm going to give them a much more complicated ending. Mm -hmm. Um, It also allowed us, we have a character who's a young woman who is fascinated with science. Mm -hmm. And in the 1830s world in which the novel is set, that character would never have been able to actually pursue that. She could, you know, she could read about it a little bit, but not pursue it. So we were able to sneak in a little hint that maybe she gets to go off and be a scientist for a. It's just good. Like why? Why not? She becomes Ada Lovelace. Oh my god! (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) There's a great uh, graphic novel about Ada Lovelace and uh, Charles Babbage, the the, right going on like steampunk adventures. Fantastic, amazing. That's. Consider adapting that for your next one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ada Lovelace is one of those characters that I Mm -hmm. would, who wouldn't love to spend time with her? The fact that she's kind of considered the first computer programmer. Mm -hmm. Obviously, her having Byron in your family is fascinating and terrifying. Um, Yes, and terrifying. (laughs) But the idea of coming out of this this family, right, that has all this Gothic tradition Mm -hmm. to it, and yet being a mathematician, a scientist, um, also a woman very much ahead of her time. So I'd love to spend some time with her. I don't know what the story arc would be. I'd have to figure that out but I sure mean, when your best friend's an obsessed with compulsive goofball and your dad's a bulimic clubfoot there's a few ways to go with that <laughs> there's material to chew on for sure 
Um, what would be your next project if you had if you had the choice? What would be your dream project? Oh gosh, my dream project. Um, I don't know right now because uh, once we get Wives and Daughters up, I really want to spend some time with the third play, which I only have a very rough draft of right now, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's Charlotte Bronte's work, who we're familiar with from Jane Eyre, but it's uh, one of her other novels called Villette. And it's a really, really moody piece. In the, in the novel, there's a point where the protagonist spends just page after page drugged out, wandering through her town, completely confused. Oh, please. Um, I do that every Saturday. <laughs> so trying to figure out how to take this very kind of poetic, symbolic of course, material yeah. and get it into a, a narrative arc for stage, um, that's really the, the next thing I'm kind of jumping to, to dive into. So mm-hmm. it's not so much a tangent from what I'm working on now. It's a continuation of what I'm working on. But I am looking forward to spending some time with that, especially because Gaskell's work is just tonally so different. Mm -hmm. So some of the tools that I need and some of the processes of kind of working through the material are the same, but what will come out on the page will be completely different without material. And in speaking about Gaskell and uh, about, you know, the work and, you know, of course, woman writer in that uh, period in time, a lot of people consider her to be a proto-feminist. Do you agree with that or do you think she is just a feminist feminist? I'm not sure I would accurately define those words enough to be able to answer that question (laughs) for you. What I think she does so beautifully is she gives us both men and women who are struggling with the sort of definitions of what it means to be male and female in her world, which is, I think, a lot of what feminists today are kind of struggling with. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just how are we, how do we equalize opportunities for men and women and the ways we see men and women and ways we talk about men and women, um, but how do we create men and women in a way? How do we, how do we as a society um, nurture people? What are the messages we put out there? And she digs into that, but she digs into it without any kind of heavy-handed moralizing to anybody, but Mm -hmm. simply by showing us this world and showing us what happens based on how people are raised. She also has this fantastic character, Lady Harriet, who's I think the person we heard on the the promo, Uh um, who's this character who doesn't want to get married, Mm -hmm. um, which was also shocking in her time, if you want to sneak another gasp in there. (gasps) Yeah, there we go. Um, Which, you know, we're we're so familiar with these Jane Austen stories that are all these girls who are, you know, just telling me to show her ankles. Oh my God. (laughs) Right. The (laughs) slatter. So we just, we have this young woman who's like, I don't want to get married. I want to do other things with my life. Um, Mm -hmm. And she goes about sort of trying to figure out what that means. That's my Anthony Comstock impression out of the way. (laughs) So would, would you say that between this play, your previous play, and this hypothetical third, would they comprise a trilogy? Thematically? Uh, thematically, sure. I mean, they do all deal with some similar themes. Again, the voices and the tones are very, very different. Yes. So I'm not sure I would call the sort of package them as a trilogy um, and assume that somebody would do one and then the other or delve into them in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I think ideally where these would end up is on a sort of website that somebody could then search and say, oh, we're looking for a play. We've got six actresses and three actors, and we're looking for this kind of material, and then they could find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then potentially I would build beyond the three. So they do all deal with, certainly with issues of women's roles in society. They all deal with themes of loneliness. They all deal with how we find and create family, the family that we're given, and then the families that we find and create. Um, So there are definitely links between all three. And of course, even though I'm drawing on three very different voices, they're all through my voice. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are similarities in tone and ways that I, I sort of go about arcing the stories. 
Um, and they do all follow the same kind of production idea, which for me is we have a unit set and the scenes just go one after the other after the other. So it's not about mm-hmm. literally setting up. Now we're in the ballroom and we have all the trappings. Now yeah. we're in this house and we have all the trappings. It's kind of taking advantage of what theater does really well, which I think when we watch a film, we often expect to see a complete picture. And we, when we go to the theater, mm-hmm. we bring that picture with us. We create our own picture. So I'm trying to really embrace that. So stylistically, they have that in common as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're working with theater director Courtney Dobby. Uh, what's it like working with uh, uh, Ms. Dobby on this work? Because I, I, I know that you said you worked on The Tenant before. We've mm-hmm. seen that production, and we saw how it's staged. And we're really excited to see how this one is. So what was it like working with her? I don't think I saw Tenant. Oh, mm. well, I did. <laughs> you can pretend. Good play. Yeah, it was fantastic, yeah. right? It, wasn't just, it was absolutely perfect. Um, Courtney's really different. Uh, so it's a, it's a great opportunity to also see how words on the page get, they get handed off by a playwright, by a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're writing a novel, you, you sort of have more control over what the finished product is, even though it goes through editors and agents and everything else. But when you write a screenplay, a teleplay, a stage play, you hand a lot of it off. So it's great for me to see how somebody else might tackle that work, it really starts to point out what is in my writing, the writing itself that I might want to sort of shift and play with, um, what is really open to interpretation, Mm -hmm. how similar writing might go completely different directions with two different uh, directors. She's been lovely to work with. She's really great with the students, um, uh, very nurturing of what they all bring into the role. Um, One of the things that I was definitely excited about talking with her is she said, I'm not somebody who comes to a play having directed a whole bunch of period theater. She's like, I want to figure out why we're doing this now. How will mm-hmm. it resonate now? Um, so I know there are choices that they've made with some of the design elements, for example, that don't just kind of plant us in period and say this is this would only happen in 1830 to try yeah. and really make it as, as human and universal as possible. It seems, seems like a brave, very brave challenge. We'll look forward to seeing it. Great. Yep. And for people who are interested in seeing Wives and Daughters by Jacqueline Ferkins, this uh, show is running on November the 9th, starting November 9th, until November the 25th. It is, um, the the times are uh, 7.30, and then do you guys have matinees or only 7.30? Don't have matinees, as far as I know, but I'm, I'm, the, I'm a terrible person to actually know the schedule because for me, once a show is open, mm-hmm. I walk away from it. So I only know as much of the schedule <laughs> until we get to opening, but I believe it's just 7.30, mm-hmm. and then it runs through the, the weekend. Well, we're going to look very uh, forward to it. Can't wait. Thank you so much for joining our show. Great. Thanks for having me here. Yep. Pleasure. We're going to have a few uh, messages, and then we'll get back to the show. most powerful motivational speeches that I have ever heard came from people who told me I couldn't do something. (laughs) You know why? Because when they told me I couldn't do it, I was bound and determined to show them that I could. All Access Pass is back for season two. We are a collectively run weekly program that discusses equity, inclusion, and accessibility issues on and off UBC's campus, including both visible and invisible disabilities. You can catch All Access Pass every Thursdays from 2 to 3 p.m. Anyone can get involved. No experience is necessary. People of all abilities are welcome to join. Check us out on Facebook at All Access Pass or get involved by emailing accessibilitycollective at citr.ca. Your 
cell phone already has an FM receiver chip installed in it. But major Canadian telecommunication and mobile companies have blocked access to this free system to listen to the radio in favor of charging for data streaming. With access to the FM chip, your phone can still receive broadcasts and updates during an emergency, even if the cell towers are down. Visit freeradioonmyphone.ca to see how you can get involved by contacting your carrier and signing our petition. To understand more about fashion, we asked CITR student executive and fashion expert Jonathan Q what fashion means to him. Like, it's just aesthetically something that's so ostentatious. Typically, typically. I mean, because of course, I mean, it's also, you know, I mean, when, when you say fashion, I think people are talking explicitly about uh, consumerism as opposed to someone who buys, like, uh, like you know, let's say, you know, someone buys a if you really want to know more about fashion, come on down to CITR in the Student Union Building of UBC and pick up some of our merchandise à la mode. Nous avons t-shirts, sweatshirts, socks, and coffee mugs. But it's also very aesthetically gripping. To keep you styling in support of the station you love. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Well, actually, is it? Because, I mean, you know, I was going to say because of the cultural vacuum that we exist within, but then, you know, uh, really, fashion today is kind of derived from the European idea of couture, and that's been around for centuries. Alone from the shot on lightning, the days are long and the nights are frightening. Nothing matters anyway, and that's the hell of it. Good for nothing, bad in bed, nobody likes you, you're better off dead. Goodbye, goodbye, we've all come to say goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. That was a snippet from Phantom of the Paradise. That's right. very nearly could get me kicked out of this studio for sheer tone deafness. I can't believe we actually just stood up and just started up. Singing right here. Well, right my op- my option was either that, which is the last song, it's over the credits, or the first song, which is God. Paul Williams must either really love or just flat out hate Frankie Valley, because <laughs> that there are songs in that. So, Phantom of the Paradise, I might have mentioned. There's the band, the band that is the minions of the evil character Swan. That's are right. Variably... We talked about this last show. If you're wondering, yeah. what are what's Phantom of the what? Go, Check out our last show. Go listen to it. It was dope. Yeah. Uh, they're variously. The Juicy Fruits. Yeah. It's three guys and then a backing, three singers and a backing band. The Juicy Fruits, the Beach Bums, and then the Undeads. Yeah. Respectively, Frankie Valley, the Beach Boys, and I don't know, Alice Cooper? Like, the thing is that they, <laughs> they have no mark. personality, so they change. Not only does mm-hmm. each time a different one sings lead, but also their entire image and look and sound goes. Mm-hmm. And they're all pastiches of sound because at the time when this was made in the 70s, huge 50s nostalgia. Baby boomers are still buying records, so you got like the American graffiti thing going with Frankie Valley and the Beach Boys. And Anyways, I'm, I'm guessing you enjoyed that. I did, yes. Yeah. Phantom of the Paradise. I At saw the Rio. That. Yep. And I also, also Rocky Horror. Um, very similar, interesting movies. Phantom of the Paradise, like Rocky Horror, is a well made movie that is possibly unintentionally hilarious, but at any rate has a lot of black humor. Mm-hmm. The thing that occurs to me, because I've seen Phantom of the Paradise before, re-watching it, because I've also been reading Nathan Rabin's Nashville Bust column okay. for our Twin Bandit uh, interview next week. Stay mm-hmm. tuned, kids. Uh, if you reset Phantom of the Paradise in Nashville, it wouldn't be dark enough. <laughs> no, good lord. Like, the, like the, some of the things that have gone on, you know, George Jones alone, Hank Williams. Like, it's, it's some of those things that the really prop up the record industry or probably the film industry too considering what we're hearing about Harvey Weinstein among others oh my gosh yeah. and then there's even more like did you hear about the thing about Dustin Hoffman too and Kevin Spacey yeah yeah 
Two of my favorite actors might be sexual predators. That's great. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, the uh but that's Brett Ratner. Uh, Ratner. Well, he has the word rat in his name. So Red I'm Ratner. Hot. Brett Ratner. Like yeah. the, goodbye. Mm, goodbye. Right. He did make Red Dragon though. But uh, the thing is that. Uh, like, Phantom of the Paradise is a good movie, I would say. I'd say Rocky Horror is a good movie, too. Mm-hmm. They're just out there. They're weird films. And because of that, they get this almost air of unintentional comedy. Yep. So that was my Halloween. Yeah, that sounds like a good Halloween. I hope everyone had a good and safe Halloween. This is the after Halloween show, meaning that yep. everyone's feeling a little, like, candy hungover. Or, and just, also or real, just regular, regular hungover. hungover. Yeah, just, just regular hungover. Yeah. You know, that's 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 how it goes, right? Yep. Uh, what what were you dressed up for Halloween? I was Brad from Rocky Horror because oh, nice. my riffraff costume fell through. I actually loaned out the tailcoat, so hmm. I was like blue sweater vest, blue shirt, gray pants, windbreaker, glasses. Done. The funny thing, I had the hairline for riffraff. So, <laughs> what were you? I was actually uh, I was a costume within a costume. I was Jean from Bob's Burgers dressed up as Handsome Grapes. Oh, that's right from the Halloween episode of Bob's Burgers. That's right. But then people didn't know I was, you know, either Grapes or even Jean because they're little children because we were actually uh, staying home and handing out candy to kids. If they did know, would that have been better or worse? Worse, probably. (laughs) Anyway, I just – I thought the kids are pretty adorable. Um, Do I want kids? No. Uh, Because – after getting the fifth, hey, are you balloons? I was kind of like, no, I'm not balloons. I'm sorry. Why would I tape balloons to my body to be the costume of balloons? There and if it was, maybe. And if it was, why would I only choose the color purple? That doesn't make any sense. Okay. I would choose a lot of different colors to be just balloons. But, you know, little kids are cute. They're Prince- like. Prince's balloons? Yeah, they were just really excited. They're like, you're balloons. I'm like, nope, but here's some candy, anyways. And then uh, they were trying to, like, give me, like, uh, tips on how to do my costume better they're like oh you shouldn't have worn a yellow shirt because then because of the yellow shirt i don't know why you should have worn like a green shirt or like a brown shirt and then at that point i just had to show them a screen cap of what characters we were and they were like oh you guys look like the picture oh i get it now and i was like yeah i can't tell you where it's from though but that's well, us the, 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 they've got the internet they'll they'll figure it out when they grow up yeah uh-huh. <laughs> much more faster than usual exactly anyway. you know yeah. Kids grow up fast these days. It's <laughs> November now. First yep, that's day right. of November. First of November. You know, it, it does get, you know, as, as as the year gets colder and the days get shorter, mm-hmm. you know, I was going somewhere with that, but I can't rhyme it. The, um, the thing that occurs to me mm-hmm. is that you need some warmth in the day. You need yep. a little bit of humor. Mm-hmm. And we can provide that because at the Chan Center Ooh. on this coming on this coming Saturday yeah. is the appearance of Gad M. Lale. Yes, I pronounced it right! Mm-hmm. One more time for the crowd. Gad M. Lale. He is a Moroccan-French comedian, known as the biggest comedian in French, and thank God he does not bear resemblance to Jerry Lewis. Rest in peace, Jerry, but I find you obnoxious. Um, <laughs> is, is a, he started off doing one-man shows, but he's... He's a, the kind of comedian who can pack stadiums, and he did it just for laughs in 20, last year with mm-hmm. uh, with Jerry Seinfeld. He and Jerry are buddies, apparently. And he's actually been called the Seinfeld of France. Okay. Which is... is he, does he do clean comedy and enjoy being a talking bee? See, he's actually only just starting out in straight English language specials because he's wow. best known in France. And yeah. he speaks four languages. He speaks uh, Hebrew, he speaks Arabic, and he mm-hmm. speaks French as well as English. And the funny thing is that... Um, 
he's he he's familiar to Montreal. He studied political science at McGill, according to the internet. And it was a funny thing that you know, I, Montreal. I I've I have a tangential relationship to France at best, but I lived in Montreal for a little while. It's a really interesting city, and it does foster things like that. Like Montreal is the city that gave us Mordecai Rickler on one hand, and uh, what's what's his face, um, Gavin McGinnis on the other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's among many others. It's a very cursory selection of things, but. So, he, the, so he's coming to the Champ Center this Saturday. Yes, he is. And I, I believe there still should be tickets. The show starts at 8 o'clock, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's a comedy show. you got to yeah. like that. And I honestly, like around this same time last year, I was like, God, we need some comedy. We really do. Oh, yeah. November well, same last same time last year. year. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, we know. Yeah, we, we remember that. Uh, oh, November. But like, it, this is interesting to me is the language barrier because language – and comedy are very like comedy is probably one of the most linguistically tough things to do. Yeah. Because even when you do speak the language and you know a joke, it can co- it may come off completely flat. Delivery. Yeah, and it's oftentimes jokes are rooted in the vagaries of semantics. Like this is a this is a joke I'm reading about E. e. Cummings and his vaudevillian joke. May, maybe slight trigger warning here. Um, is that. It, but this is like vaudeville in the 1910s. So. Yeah, content warning for for goes, like insensitive language. Yeah, yeah. and he goes, "Would you hit a woman with a child?" He goes, "No, I'd hit her with a brick," like something like that. It's a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Of it plays on the double meaning of a woman with a child. Yeah, a woman who has a child versus what you're gonna like. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay. You don't have to explain the joke. Or like, oh no, the best example though would be Groucho Marx though. Okay. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Mm-hmm. How many different meanings can you parse from that? That's a much better example, actually. Yeah, that's a so, better example. You no, should have opened a gro- Groucho. Yes, I should have. Forget yeah. that one, that that last one. That was blame E.E. E. Cummings. Um, yeah. I feel like a lot of people who loved E.E. E. will now immediately kind of go like, whoa, okay, new side, didn't expect that. Well. But, uh, sorry, we're here to kill your heroes. Consider his involvement with Senator McCarthy to be a bigger mark on that regard. Yeah. Um, but for someone like Adam Alec, because he performs, he's performed in mixed Arabic and French mm-hmm. shows for his for in, shows in Casablanca. Yep. And he's also performed shows in Hebrew in Israel. Mm-hmm. So those that in and of itself is very interesting to me. But the fact that English is a weird language and that it's also probably the largest demographic, media demographic in the world, yes. is a very unique and very challenging approach. I'm really interested to see the show. Like, that is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And we actually have some of his comedy queued up to seek out of the show, I believe. Yeah, we do. Uh, this is actually a uh, stand-up that he did at the Late Show mm-hmm. with Stephen Colbert uh, back in uh, December 2016. Yep. We hope uh, you guys enjoy. Yep. And if you want to check out uh, Gad Emile. 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 I need to practice. Emile, not Gad Emile. That's the citation mm-hmm. wizard. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I am not a comedian. Anyway. Well, actually, it- Anyway, um, if you want to go check out a show, it's this Saturday. There should be tickets left at the Chan Center. I'm still funnier than Dane Cook. <laughs> then go ahead. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Ashley Park, and we'll catch you next week. Catch you next week. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to be here. Uh, yes, I just moved to America. Uh, yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> I have an accent, I think you've noticed, right? But do you guys understand me now? Thank you. Not everybody does here in America. 
especially in New York, they don't have time. And sometimes I feel like if I mispronounce one letter, that's it. There's no second chance. <laughs> I jumped in a cab the other day here in New York City, and I said to the driver, please take me to GFK Airport. Can you believe this guy had no idea what I was talking about? <laughs> I said, sir, how many places do you know in New York City that has an F and K and an airport in their name? <laughs> I mean, I didn't come up with TTB or QPN or whatever. And even if I did, come on, meet me halfway, you know? <laughs> If I was a cab driver and you asked me to take you to KFC Airport, I'd take you to JFK Airport. <laughs> and not only because I know they've got a KFC at JFK, <laughs> because I'm gonna assume, I'm gonna guess this is where you wanna go. Come on, guys, let's imagine you come to France, Paris to visit. You're lost, you're in the street, you come up to me and, I mean, I won't stop, but imagine. <laughs> And you're lost, and you mix up the name of something. Yeah, we're Americans. We're looking for the iPhone tower. <laughs> I'm going to guess. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to be like, what? You mean Apple Store of Paris? No. <laughs> anyway, so make a long story short, this cab driver kept correcting my accent, and he was Indian. I said, sir, we're both immigrants, right? We should be helping each other. And by the way, you maybe got this J thing right in JFK, but you said Erput. <laughs> Touche, right? <laughs> French word, by the way. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's incredible, those guys. But I respect them. They work hard. I don't know, also, what kind of a phone plan those guys use. <laughs> I mean, they can talk for hours on the phone. They're always on, I think it's a very specific phone plan where it's free if it's a monologue. <laughs> They're always on the phone with another guy who apparently never says anything. <laughs> so you're sitting in the back and you just hear this little voice. <laughs> Poor guy on the other end must be trying. <laughs> and if you don't know he's on the phone, you think he talks to you, right? You get closer. What? No, I'm on the phone. <laughs> so it's new to me, right? I'm new here, and so many things are new to me. For example, I didn't know that comedians here in America, they don't do an encore when they finish the show, right? You know encore, another French word for you. Encore is, you know, you guys, musicians, you do encore like you finish the show, and you walk off the stage, you pretend, that's it, I'm going home, but you're hiding over there. <laughs> and then the crowd is pretending to, they want you back. Everyone is pretending. That's, that's a big, you know, hypocrisy going on here. And then you wait a little bit, then you come back, and you pretend you're so moved, and you don't believe it, oh my God. <laughs> I was not expecting that. That's incredible. And, but they don't do this in New York City. And I didn't know that. I did a show last week in New York City. Finished my show, walked off the stage. I came back. They were gone. That was hard. I'm, uh, I'm single. Um, it's a great thing when you're in New York City. Uh, 
I've been texting some American girls. I just get confused with some of your expressions, guys. One of these girls, I uh, said to, let's go out for a drink. She said, I'm down. <laughs> I said, all right, so let's do it uh, next time. She said, why? I said, because you're depressed. And, uh, <laughs> she said, no, I'm down means I'm totally up for it. <laughs> How am I supposed to know? I said, so you want to go out? She said, I'm in. <laughs> and this other girl, I texted. I said, let's go out. She said, would be dope. <laughs> Did you know this one? I don't know. So I asked my best friend, he's American, what does it mean, would be dope? He said, it means she's too young. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, Submerge up in thoughts from earth I can strive the difference In searching catharsis to purge all my problems with it Dreamt of the non-fiction Partner is my business Freeze frame mid-air Tatted clothes and cracked glass Blink of my eye ground approaches that fast I'm back I landed on my fist and kneecap the mist The crater in the mist The king stands It's the new millennium man All combatants fall I kick a simple nigga 